welcome back to the Out to Be podcast. It is your host, Katie Zicardi, and we've got a very exciting episode for you today. I am interviewing Michael Elsner, who is a guitarist, songwriter, and producer with over 2,500 TV and film placements. So today we're going to be talking all about sync licensing. We've touched upon sync a couple times in the podcast before, but we've never really gone deep like we do in this episode. And while we start with the basics in this episode, we're really giving you what you need to know to figure out if sync licensing is a good fit for you and a stream of income that you might want to add to your business. Michael has had his songs placed in over 180 individual television series Um, and 850 individual episodes. So that's incredible. He knows what he's talking about. And he also is hosting a training series and a webinar coming up in the next week. So the link to join those will be in the show notes today. I highly, highly, highly recommend that you sign up for those events and check them out, especially if you are wanting to explore sync after you listen to this episode. If you're like, I need to do this, you've got to go and join those events so that you can start to move forward in your sync career. All right, so I'm going to keep this intro relatively short. One more thing I do want to add before we dive in is that my audio was a little bit wonky in this episode. I'm not sure what happened. I think maybe my mic was not connected right because I sound very distant. So I tried to fix it the best that I could. Bear with it. It's not too bad at all, but um, if, if it sounds like I'm in a room away, I do apologize. <laughs> Other than that, um, I will see you all for our town hall tomorrow afternoon. If this is the first time you're hearing about the town hall, well, then you got to get on my email list or follow me on Instagram at Katie Zaccardi because the podcast only happens once a week, but things happen in between it. So make sure that you are on my email list. You can shoot me a DM on Instagram at Katie Zaccardi to get on that. But we are hosting a town hall tomorrow and it's basically just going to be a really intimate event for all people in the music industry who want to join to get together and talk about what's going on in the industry and the world right now. Think of it as a way to basically talk shop with other people who get exactly what you're going through and to be able to honestly like vent a little bit about what you're struggling with. I know things might feel a little chaotic right now and I wanted to provide a space for us all to connect. We're also going to be giving the chance to meet with new people and make new connections and find uh, potential collaborators in this group. So you can expect a guided discussion where I'll be asking some questions to the group and anyone who wants to share can have the opportunity to share their insights and feelings. We'll dive into some topics like how we're feeling about money, the economy, social media, being an indie artist right now, and things like that. We'll also do breakout rooms so people can connect more one-on-one or in small group settings and network a little bit and just have those deeper conversations. And you know that there's going to be like a pep talk or an impromptu meditation or mindset exercise for me because the goal is not just to have event session and then leave feeling shitty. The goal is to leave on a positive note, feeling really supported and motivated to move forward. So again, I wanted to do this just so that I honestly could connect with you guys at a deeper level and so that you could have the opportunity to share in a safe way what you're going through and be able to talk about it instead of keeping it all inside. Whether it is good, whether it's not so good, like I want you to have the opportunity to share these things with people who understand what it's like to be a musician and a music entrepreneur. So you can RSVP, I'll put the link to that in the show notes as well. It is happening tomorrow. And again, if you're wondering, how is this the only time I'm hearing about this? Make sure that you are following me on Instagram at Katie Zaccardi and getting on my email list so that you do not miss any news like this that comes. All right, I'm going to keep that at that. (laughs) We're four minutes in already. And let's dive into my interview with Michael Elsner. Hey, Michael, and welcome to the Out to Be podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is going to be a good time. I am excited to chat with you. Today, we're going to talk about sync licensing. We haven't really dove into in the podcast before. So with that being said, before we get into the juicy stuff, can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you got into sync licensing yourself? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) probably like a lot of things. I I just kind of fell into it. Um, It was somewhat intentional, but I fell into it in the sense of I didn't really know that sync licensing even existed at the time. Um, but I grew up in upstate New York, played in bands through the 90s, and uh, moved to Nashville initially in 1998. Um, I was in Nashville until 2003, 
And during that time, I was um, doing a lot of studio work. Started off on the more technical side of things. I ended up connecting with a engineer right when I came to town, who who is uh, also a producer and he's won multiple Grammys and uh, was you know was and is uh, well known and highly respected in the engineering circles. And so I, I just met him by chance and became friends with them. And I started working with them. And then uh, that, that opened up some initial doors into uh, the studio uh, world. And that led to, uh, of course, I always came from you know, a writing background and, and a you know, performing background, playing in bands and whatnot. So I started working with various songwriters and stuff like that. And this is you know late 90s, early 2000s. So home recording wasn't as prevalent as it is now. But I was a early uh, adopter of home recording. So, uh, between the experience that I had in the studio and what I was learning from all these, you know, great engineers and producers, I was putting that into effect with my home recording demos, so to speak. I never approached them as demos, though. From the from the onset, I always looked at them as as full on recordings, uh, even to the point to where I would work. Uh, you know, some extra hours, you know, at, at various studios to get some free time to be able to go in and track drums or, you know, track guitars or even track vocals on, on some of these songs. So from the beginning, from the outset, I was really making high quality recordings. And I had I had the benefit of having, you know, these these great engineers who I could play them, you know, my recordings and, and be like, so what do you think? You know, they may be in the other room, you know, doing a mix and I'd, I'd invite them into the room that I was working in. They'd give me some suggestions and so I'd make some tweaks and whatnot. So that led into producing around 2000. And uh, so from 2000 to 2003, I was producing a, a, a lot of artists out of Nashville uh, at the same time, I was playing guitar on sessions. I worked my way into that world. But on the songwriting side, I was getting turned down by publishers left and right. So I finally had this last batch of songs that I took to a bunch of publishers. And I thought, if, if they say no, then it's time for a change. And I was really proud of them. And of course, they said no. So at that point on the, on the drive home, I decided it was time to give Los Angeles a shot. And within uh, just a couple of weeks, I was out in Los Angeles. And um, so I got out to Los Angeles in 2003 and very quickly landed a gig on a TV show playing guitar uh, for the composer. So that's when I first started seeing just kind of how composers worked. And then uh, I, was, I was actually hired to play guitar on another TV show on CBS where I got to, uh, you know, be actually on set. And... Um, and while we were on set, the person who was overseeing everything was the music supervisor. So I met the music supervisor, and and I think our second day on set, I I just said, hey, can I give you a, can I give you a CD of some of my songs? Because I didn't know what she did, you know. And yeah. so as I was learning more about what she did, it was fascinating to me. So I said, can I give you some of my songs? And so the next day, I showed up and I gave her a CD, and within two weeks, I had a featured placement on a show called Cold Case, which at the time, you know, you was. Yeah, within two weeks, two, wow, two that's three amazing. weeks. That is yeah, and, and to me that was that was like this is incredible because I'm so used to hearing no when I give yeah. people my songs, yeah. and this was the opposite. And then, uh, and then you know, like a week or two later, I saw her out at an event, and she introduced me to one of her uh, other supervisor friends, and it's like I just use one of Michael's songs in in this episode. You know, you need to send her your music, and so, you know, I was like, oh, this, is, this is sure I'll send you some of my songs, and I did the same thing, and and. And what happened was ultimately the responses that I was used to in the, in the we'll call it the traditional music industry, which was often a no, but keep writing and bring us some more songs in three more months, uh, quickly turned into, oh yeah, this is great. And, and not only is it great, but we're actually going to pay you money to use it. So that's, that's how I got into it. And I was so captivated by the fact that I didn't get turned down. And when I would send out other music to other people, I didn't get turned down and they started using it. So I started, you know, really submitting my songs in 2004. And by the, by Thanksgiving of 2005, I actually have to go back and really do the math on this and, and find out what this is. But I either had my 50th placement or my 75th placement. It was one of those two. Um, but either, either way that's whatever number. one, it was still a pretty good number in yeah. <laughs> fairly short amount of time. And, and, but at the same point, licensing was a completely different world at that time. Um, you know, 
file delivery was not, you know, you couldn't just send a file, you know, through the internet. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was still at a time where I was delivering CDs. And then we went through a phase where it became like FTP servers. And now, now it's, it's shocking how easy it is to do everything that we, you know, had to do back in 2005. That took a while. I remember, you know, getting a call one evening when I was walking in to go have dinner uh, with a friend at a restaurant, I got a call from uh, someone saying, Hey, we're using one of your songs in this commercial. Um, but they need the stems and they need the stems by like seven 30 or whatever the time was. And I literally had, you know, an hour and a half to, I mean, I didn't even sit down for dinner. I just ran out, got in my car. I went to my studio. I had to go burn the stems. I had to burn them onto a CD. Then I had to, well, I had to go print the stems first. Then I had to go burn them onto a CD. Then I had to drive through traffic to get downtown to, to deliver them to the office where now, you know, you just send a file, right? Like, like boom, like you're done. Yeah. So it was a different world, but at the same point, the licensing space was also different than it is now in the sense of um, the music industry really started looking at licensing as a primary source of revenue starting around 2008, 2009. Of course, they were trying to make up all the revenue that they had lost through file sharing and peer-to-peer -peer networks and whatnot. So during that time, you know, which was a very special time for a couple couple reasons. Number one, that, that time meaning like the early to mid 2000s or early to later 2000s, I should say. It was special because uh, home recording was becoming prevalent but it wasn't, uh, you know, not everyone was doing it yet, right? So, so there was that element and on top of it, um, so which meant that a lot of independent musicians were now getting their songs placed on TV shows without having to go through a record label, right, or a publisher. So independent musicians were now coming to supervisors with great quality music. Now at the same point, supervisors weren't being bombarded by every record label and publisher and musician yet because licensing wasn't the big moneymaker or wasn't recognized as the big moneymaker that it is now, right? Um, because people were still expecting to sell albums. So that change really started happening in 2008, 2009. Prior to that, supervisors and, and folks who worked at libraries and, and whatnot, they were readily available to us as independent artists especially since we lived there and especially since we were able to come to the table with high quality, you know, music, uh, professional quality music. So we were able to get in and be able to sit with them and really learn the ins and outs. And I realized that recently when I was reading a book called Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, he talks about, you know, other industries and how there are special times. And I started thinking about a lot of the people who teach and share sync licensing the common, the common denominator is we're all roughly the same age. We all lived in Los Angeles during that time. And we all learned on the job through supervisors, through music coordinators, uh, sitting with music editors, uh, you know, sitting with, with music library reps and sync agents because they were accessible to us. And then that started changing, like I said, around 2008, 2009, right. when all the record labels started looking at licensing as a way to fill in the gaps of all the revenue that they lost from the lack of album sales and file sharing and whatnot. Right. So it was a very special time to come up. But what's also very interesting is the growth that we've experienced in the licensing space. Uh, for example, in 2019, that was the first year that we crossed over uh, the 500 mark when it came to scripted TV shows. For 2018, there were 495 and in 2019, we crossed over the 500 mark. It was the low 500s. Um, and to give you a perspective of this, in uh, you know 2009, I think there were like 172 or 173 scripted wow. shows. Wow. But you look at today, and I was looking earlier today. Uh, now this 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 moves, of course. This, this number is always going to slightly move based on production schedules and whatnot. But to give you a perspective of this, three weeks ago, I looked, there were 979 shows that were in production or active development. Last week, there were 1,000. And as I looked today, there are 999. Wow. So of course, as things move out of production, they wrap up production, whatnot, uh, that, that number is going to move. But in the span of three years, we've literally doubled the amount of shows that are in production since 2019. So okay. that kind of gives you a perspective of how fast the TV industry is growing. Yeah, And of course, all those shows, that, those are shows, that's not films, that's not commercials, it's not documentaries, video games, trailers, none of that. And they were just talking scripted shows. Um, and, and of course, the, 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 uh, the reference that I'm also using are US-based shows. Uh, so of course, we can see how fast this is 
growing and how much of an opportunity there is for musicians who focus on learning how to position themselves as professionals in the in the in the sync licensing world yeah oh my gosh i feel like I feel like I'm not even in sync licensing and I feel excited about how much potential there is <laughs> just hearing you describe it. So for those of my listeners who maybe have actually not heard of sync before, hopefully they've kind of picked up on what it is from just context clues of you talking, but can you give us like a crash course on what sync licensing is and how it works on a very basic level? I, on a very basic level, it is every time you hear a TV show that has a song you know, so for example, you're watching a show and you hear a John Mayer song, you know, uh, in order for the, the owners of the production company, right, or the people who are overseeing the production of the show, that show is its own piece of intellectual property, right? So the, the people who are overseeing that piece of intellectual property have to get the rights, they have to get permission from the rights holders of the song, which is another piece of intellectual property. They have to get the, so in this case, it would be John Mayer and John Mayer's publishing company and his record label and because they all have a claim to that. Mm -hmm. They have to get the rights to synchronize his song with their moving picture. So that's it really in its most basic form. It's, it's, it's the right or it's the license that's secured. It's called the synchronization license. It's the right that is secured from the production company to the owner of the song or the, who, the entity that controls the song. Can I say entity to be very specific because uh, the songwriter or the artist does not always control that, all right? Um, if you're an independent musician and you've not signed with a record label or you're not signed with a publisher, then you do control it. Right, but right. in the case of like a John Mayer, uh, you know, he has a record label and a publisher and they're, they're, the, they're the individuals that really control that um, or those are the companies. Uh, so it, it's really securing the right to, to synchronize one piece of intellectual property, in this case, the song, with another piece of intellectual property, in this case, the TV show or the film, which which is really just considered moving picture or like, you know, actual film right. or video. And by securing that right, they're getting permission, but they're also paying for the right. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. The production company pays. It's like rent, right? It's like they're paying the owner of the song rent so to speak to synchronize their song with with the film or the or the show or or whatever is the commercial whatever the video is so they're paying an upfront licensing fee we'll put quotes around this as rent right and so that so that's the initial licensing fee okay now uh, on the back end the songwriter and the publisher they collect performance royalties so when the show airs it, you know, it generates a performance royalty. And every time it airs, it generates a performance royalty. And so that performance royalty is paid on the back end. Now, I shared with you earlier that I had my first, you know, sync placement on a show called Cold Case and, uh, you know, back in the day. I still get paid for that uh, because that show is still in syndication in other countries. Yeah. So every three months, I get a check from ASCAP. Now, I was also the publisher. So the way that ASCAP lays out their their uh payments it's like one month it's you know um international royalties the next month it's it's songwriting and the next month it's publishing so really what's happening is i'm actually collecting money every month from ASCAP. but as a whole when it comes to performance royalties they're paid quarterly uh in this case you know this gosh what is that it's 17 year 18 years 17 18 years now right uh ish that song got first, you know, licensed on a show and it still pays money back in royalties. In fact, the back in royalties that I've made on that song over all these years far outweigh the initial upfront licensing fee, which at that time was enough to pay my Los Angeles rent for many months. So, so that's the beauty of licensing is, is it really generates long-term revenue for you uh, that there's really no other outlet as a musician that we have that really provides that for us. Unless of course you get a, a huge song, you know, like, uh, you know, like the police, every breath you take that is always gonna be airing every day on the radio, you know, uh, 30, 40 years down the road. That's amazing. So as you mentioned earlier, there's TV, there's film ads, there's video games, there's all of these different avenues where you can get a song placed. So what what is the potential here for independent artists specifically, who are wanting to increase their streams of income and are thinking, hmm, 
maybe this is a way to do it. Yeah. But does it look like, I want to talk about in a second what it looks like in terms of actually doing it, but in terms of potential for making money, what, what would this look like for an indie artist? Well, the potential for making money, when you compare it to what a lot of indie, indie artists compare things to is they, they look at streaming, right? And right. so across the top eight streaming services, it costs, uh, this is across all, all top eight streaming services, not just Spotify, and you know, whatever. Um, in fact, actually the most generous of all of them is actually Napster and the least generous of all of them is YouTube. Um, but it takes on average 225 streams to earn $1. Okay. That's across, across, that's the average. Okay. Uh, yet at, at the same point, when it comes to a sync placement, you can get one sync placement can bring in 1,000, 5,000, $10,000 or more. It could also bring in $10. Yeah. Uh, it's going to really depend on the outlet. Uh, there are a number of factors that go into that, but for example, a placement on a popular network TV show by network, I mean like ABC, NBC, CBS, prime time, meaning it's getting the most eyes, you know, um, then that, that's obviously going to pay a lot more than a placement on some random show on the hunting network. Right. You know, and, uh, <laughs> because I, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously people subscribe to, or the, I should maybe say the outdoor channel. I think that's the same thing. Um, you know, there are people who subscribe to the outdoor channel and this and that, but it's nowhere near the amount of eyes that see a show, a popular show on, you know, network TV or, or like a massive show on Netflix, like, you know, stranger things. In fact, as we're, as we're talking right now, uh, about Kate Bush? yeah. So, you know, <laughs> the, you know, and yeah. that's a song that's 30, how many years old is, is that song is 37, 30, 34, 37. Let me Google it. Let's see. It's, it's a song that's 34 or 37 years old. Here, here's the point. The number one independent musician in the world right now is a woman who's over 60 years old with a song that's over 30 years old. It's amazing. Because of a placement on one show. Yeah, it's from 1985. And it's so funny when you Google it, the first thing that comes up is, does Kate Bush own Running Up That Hill? Because people are really curious to see like how much money she's making. It's on Stranger Things. It's all over TikTok. Like, it's so fascinating to watch this process <laughs> yeah, and, and that was a song that was released in what did you say 1985 yep 85 okay so that's the power of sync licensing you you know uh i was actually just on a call earlier about an hour ago i was talking to a, a, a another individual and I, I was just out in um los angeles a, a week and a half ago um having dinner with my business partner a composing partner and we were just talking about how you know tracks that we did in 2012 from our first from our first trailer album are still generating some of our biggest placements right now and as i shouldn't even say still because because for a long time they weren't for yeah, a long yeah. time the ones that were generating the placements were uh, the, the most recent albums right but it seems like there was a little phase you know where that first record that we did back in 2012 kind of got a, a bit of a boost for whatever reason, the sound of it, everything lined up where, you know, in the traditional music industry path, you release a record, you get it on the radio. If, it, if you don't have a big hit song with it, you know, then it just disappears. But with licensing, and of course, the Kate Bush example is, is a perfect example of this. There's a song, there's an album that arguably has been dead for many years, you know, aside from the small fan base of, you know, core fans, right? Yeah arguably has been dead. There's a whole generation who doesn't know the first thing about, you know, her or, or, or her work. And now they all do. Right. So that's the power of licensing. As far as, you know, how much, how much money can you make? Again, it just goes back to the type of placement. And that's why, to me, I feel like the question of how much money can I make is the wrong question because you're looking at one singular placement. You should never look at a singular placement. You can make 10 bucks, you can make $10,000, you can make more. It's just going to depend on the placement. The goal is consistent placements. Yeah. Okay, I mark my words, you're going to start hearing more of Kate Bush in the next, you know, couple months. I'm sure. I remember years ago when I was working in music publishing, um there was like 
a period of several months where Gloria, you know, the song Gloria. Oh, you're Laura Branigan. Yeah, was yeah. just getting synced left and right. Like it was having a moment. And again, yeah. again, it's just another somewhat random song. Like people know it, but it just had this moment where all of a sudden it was omnipresent. Like you're seeing yeah. it in all of these different projects. You're wanting to listen to it more because it mm -hmm. jogs your memory that the song even exists. And yeah. so I love that you can use, you know, even if you're a musician right now and you're writing current stuff, you also can use your entire back catalog yep. to and capitalize on that for um, movement and for placements, which you can't always do because it can sometimes be hard in other ways to reignite old music. Exactly. Social yeah. media or, or whatever. Yeah, and that goes, it goes with the fact that when it comes to a sync placement, your your music has value because it's giving tangible value to something else, right? Like when it's synchronized to a commercial, uh, it's giving tangible value to the product that that commercial is pitching, right? right. Uh, here here with, with, with Stranger Things, same thing. This is a TV show. You know, there's a, there's a tangible outlet there. But when it comes to getting your song on the radio, what is the tangible outlet? When it comes to releasing your album, what is the tangible outlet? You really, you know, release your album to ultimately promote a tour, right? And that's, you know, and, and, and or, or vice versa, you know, you, you tour to promote a record, which right. is depending on, on, the, on, on your business model, right? But there's, aside from that, where is the tangible outlet that actually drives, you know, money or, or value to your song? How does your song really, you know, drive value? And, and I think that can be argued in the radio space. Um, but when it comes to synchronizing your music to moving picture, whether it's a film, commercial, film trailer, TV show, whatever, you're giving tangible value to that scene, to that product, to the movie, if it's a movie trailer or a video game, a video game trailer, right? So just by that very nature, music instantly has value when it's synchronized to another product. Yeah, it's a really good way to think of it. I've never thought of it like that before, but it's so true. And when you're think when you're a musician releasing music, you think of gigs and hopefully touring now that we can again, merch and streams. And depending on the size of musician you are, you could be making a decent amount from that, but you also could maybe not be. <laughs> you know, it could be a struggle, but you don't have to. Well, actually, this is a good question for you. Do you have to have a fan base? in order to make money from sync licensing? No, not at all. And, and it kind of even going back to what you were talking about when it comes to gigs and whatnot, uh, when the gig is over, the money's over. Yeah, it's true. You know, you get paid and you leave. If no one showed up to that gig, then you had a bad night. Yeah. Right. But when it comes to sync licensing, you know, there's, there's so many great things about it. You know, how old you are, doesn't matter. What you look like, doesn't matter. Uh, your the number of followers that you have on Instagram, your Instagram and social media game doesn't matter. What matters is that your song a can be found. That's that's important, okay? Uh, and and of course, the second thing, of course, is that it actually complements the action that's taking place on the scene, uh, you know, on, on film. Right. And then, of course, there's other elements that go into it as far as like it's easily licensable and clearable because you have to keep in mind that. Supervisors, their main job is to clear the rights to actually license the song. They, they want to make sure that they have full rights to license the song from all the rights holders. Now, as an independent musician, generally speaking, that doesn't get too complicated right. because you're not dealing with multiple publishers, multiple record labels, etc. As an independent musician, chances are you own and control everything. Even if you're working with a co-writer, chances are that co-writer owns and controls everything right right so so it's a, it's 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 a lot easier than than when you start getting you know various record labels and, and and publishing companies involved yeah that that makes sense can you explain a little bit more about what you mean when you say the song has to be able to be found well the song has to actually you know when it, it has to be able to be found uh there's millions of songs out there right so you have to look at the supervisor's job. What is the role of a supervisor? Well, the supervisor's role, the real role of a supervisor 
they well, they have multiple roles, uh, you know, but they're working with the director and the producer, uh, you know, the director and the producer, you got to keep in mind that, you know, when they were filming the scene, probably three months prior to actually looking for the music, they already had an idea of what they were looking for. Maybe this, maybe the scriptwriter even had an idea of what they were looking for, you know, two years prior, right? right? When, when they were writing the, the show. So there's a whole journey that this, that this whole process goes through, right? And music is one of the very last things that's added to a show or a film. So when music gets added, it's not just by a whim. It's, it's been very meticulously thought out and discussed. So a music supervisor now comes to the table and has some very clear guidelines that the production company, the director, the producer, whoever it would be, uh, that they have for the scene, right? So they're saying like, we want, this is what we're looking for. We, we're looking for X, okay? Now the supervisor's job is to go find a song that meets that criteria. It could be one of those things where, uh, you know, the production company put in a Beyonce song, but the Beyonce song is going to cost $80,000 and they don't have $80,000, right. right? Maybe they only have 10,000. So now the supervisor's job is to find a replacement for that Beyonce song. So now they're going to look for an independent track that they can clear for much less than $80,000. And, uh, you know, if their budget's say 10, then of course, you know, one of their other jobs is they have to stay within the budget, Right. One of their other goals is they want to keep their client happy. So they don't want to go back to the client with, you know, I wasn't able to find the song. And, you know, they, they want to come back and, and be able to present some, some great ideas, some great options. So the supervisor now has to go through their catalog or they have to reach out to their connections at various music libraries and say, hey, listen, this is what I'm looking for. We're replacing Beyonce's song, this, you know, we're looking for something that's very similar in feel and tempo and blah, 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 right? Uh, and now they're going to go through their catalog, various libraries, the people that they, you know, have connections with at libraries, they're going to go through their catalog of hundreds of thousands of songs and put together a playlist and send it over to the supervisor. Supervisor is going to go through their catalog that they have, which, you know, also could be hundreds of thousands of songs. How do they go through this? Well, if you have a large catalog of music, and we'll say that you're a Mac user, so you use, you know, Apple Music formerly known as iTunes, to house your music catalog, and you want to look for a particular song, let's say you want to look for a song Comfortably Numb by Pink Floyd, um, you have a couple options. If you know that that's what you want to listen for, listen to, you can obviously just, you know, go in, you scroll all the way down to the P's, then you find Pink Floyd, then you just, oh, what record is, I think it's on the wall. Yeah, okay, let me scroll over, you scroll down to the wall, and then you, which, which album was it on album one or two, right? So, so you find it that Right. But that's because that's because you know what you're looking for. I'm looking for this specific song by this specific artist on this specific record. But if 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 you if you don't you know if you don't know that Comfortably Numb was done by Pink Floyd, but you know that you have somewhere in your catalog a song called Comfortably Numb, then you go to the little search bar at the top of your screen in your in your you know app here, the music app, and you would type in Comfortably or Comfortably Numb. And as you type in that keyword, which is metadata every song in your catalog that has that attached to the file in some capacity, uh, whether it's the name of the artist, whether it's the name of the song, whether it's the name of the album, whether it's the name of you know, a specific keyword that was added, doesn't matter. Any, any song that has that word added to the metadata is gonna show up. And then of course, if you type in comfortably, then you know, what's gonna show up on your screen, maybe with four or five other songs, one of them is gonna be comfortably numb by Pink Floyd. You select it, you listen to it, you have a great experience. But when it comes to a supervisor, they're going to be uh, tasked with specific keywords or maybe even artists that the song's in the silo. So maybe the supervisor is going to go into their catalog and they're going to type in Beyonce. Maybe they're going to type in like, you know, um, happy. You know, again, again, we'd have to think of like, what are some of, some of the criteria that the Beyonce song meets, you know, upbeat, you know, whatever it would be. So they're going to start typing in these, these songs. And then any song that's in their catalog ideally from independent musicians who thought enough ahead to add metadata and they thought, hey, my song sounds like Beyonce. Uh, they type in Beyonce as, as one of the keywords in the metadata, then that's gonna show up in the search. And it's the same thing on the library side. So that's what metadata is and, and that's how songs are searched. Uh, if you send out your music to people and you don't add any metadata and you expect them to figure out what to do with it, that's not the way that things work in the licensing space. That's the way things work in the traditional music industry where you send out your music, 
you know, you just send out your song. It has the title, the artist, and the album, and you let someone listen to it and decide what they do with it, whether they like it or not, whether or not they want to play it on the radio, whether or not they want to write a review on the record. You know, that's a completely different approach than actually serving our end users in the licensing space mm-hmm. with music that they can they can they can ingest into their catalog, and that will always be searchable in any future searches that they were to uh, you know uh, do with the music that's in their catalog. So many golden nuggets in there. <laughs> now that we've basically convinced everyone that sync licensing is incredible, I want to ask upfront, who is this a good fit for? Because some musicians might be thinking, all right, yeah, I'm just going to dive into this head first. But do we need anything? Do we have to have a home studio? Do we have to have music recorded? When is someone ready to dive into sync licensing? Well, you need to have music recorded. So that's going to be the starting point. And and the music that you have recorded can't be a demo. And by demo, I mean demo quality. Like it might, you know, you some people still use demo to refer to their first version of a song, but, right. but demo demo is really demo quality. And so the first, uh, the first task that I give anyone who's interested in licensing their music, the first thing I would say to you is stop watching TV and start listening to TV. Tonight, after you're done, you know, listening to this tonight or tomorrow, next time you, you know, next time you sit on on the sofa, um, close your eyes and just turn on some show, whatever, you know, it doesn't have to be a show that you're really interested in. In, uh, in fact, it might be better that it's not because if it's a show you're really interested in, then you're going to pay attention to the storyline and you're going to get distracted. Yeah. But for this particular exercise, I would just turn on something, right? Uh, close your eyes, lay on the sofa, close your eyes and tune out all the dialogue. And start listening to the music and you will find that that music runs nonstop. and when a commercial comes up don't get up and you know go to the bathroom or don't turn the channel you know to, to watch something else listen through to commercials because commercials are ads and ads pay the most mm-hmm. and you'll find the same thing is true with commercials commercials have music nonstop. Yeah, in fact yeah. music is what drives the viewing experience so so who is this ideal for I mean, anyone, if, if, if you're a songwriter, if you're a producer, if you're an artist, if you're an instrumentalist, uh, you'll find that the majority of music that you hear on TV and, and in the background is actually instrumental music. It doesn't mean all of it was composed by a traditional composer. A lot of that, uh, a lot of that music is, um, you know, from independent musicians. In fact, independent musicians are really the lifeblood of the sync licensing industry. And this is why it's so important. Why, uh, as a as a vocal uh, artist, if you're, you know, releasing vocal songs into the world, this is why it's essential that you also make sure that whoever's engineering or mixing your album also burn you some instrumental mixes, mm, yeah, um, yeah. because because even if you're like, well, I don't do instrumentals, yeah, you do. Take the vocal off. Guess what you have? <laughs> it's very simple. Two in one. Very simple. Um, <laughs> How many songs do you have to start? Uh, you don't need a lot, four or five. Um, I have a friend of mine who's had over 50 placements from a four song EP. And these are big wow. placements, you know, big, big, big shows, you know, like The Voice and stuff like that. Um, but it's really quality over quantity. Uh, you'll go a lot farther with five or 10 great, well-produced songs than you will with 100 mediocre you know, like anything, it, it, it really is quality over quantity. So I would start there. Do you need to have a home studio? No. Is it beneficial for you too? Yeah, of course. And, and, and in fact, I don't feel like there's any excuse nowadays for musicians not to have a home studio because mm. everyone has a computer. Yeah. Uh, everyone can afford $200 to at the very least buy logic. Um, and then, and then at that point, you know, every, I mean, if you're an instrumentalist, you already have your instrumental gear. If you're a vocalist, you probably already have a microphone. Yeah. At the very least, you probably have a, 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 a dynamic microphone that you take to the to the gig with you, you know, so you're not, you know, swallowing other people's spit, you know, <laughs> although although if, I would encourage you. You should because you, you, Michael just made a very good case for having one. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, every gig as, as a guitar player, when I play with artists, I show up to the gigs with my own microphone. I don't use the 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 clubs 58 that you know everyone's been spitting into for the last 20 years no way um but uh 
you know, it's, it, it's, it's, uh, it doesn't cost hardly anything to get into home recording. And to me, it's kind of one of those things where like, it's like saying like, Hey, listen, I'm a photographer. Right. But yet I don't have a camera. So what I do is I just tell the person with the camera where to point and, and how to take a photo of that bird that I, that I'm in, that I see up on that tree. Like that to me is like the, the musician who's like, I, I write songs, but I don't have a home recording system. So I, I there's no excuse not to, it doesn't cost anything. It's very, very, very minimal. Um, but do you have to have one? No, you don't. But at the same point, you have to have the knowledge to be able to share uh, this, uh, what you need with your engineer or your mix engineer so that they burn you the proper files that you can actually get into this industry and be taken seriously instead right. of just having them burn you a, a full mix of your song and then calling it a day. Yeah, that makes so much sense. So... I love it. It's really just, anyone can get into it. If you've got the drive, if you've got some songs, you can get started. So what are the steps to getting started? I know you have a four step plan to uh, licensing success. So can you just give us like the overview of what that looks like? Yeah. So uh, systems, you know, systems get you, get you places, you know, if you're just kind of guessing you, you never get where you want to go. You know? Totally agree. <laughs> So we always, we always have directions, even if we're going to the grocery store in our car, you know, uh, even if we don't have them written out, we still know at the end of the road, turn left, right? Um, and, and this is no different. You, you shouldn't be guessing your way through this because when you're licensing your music, you're actually working in a multi, multi, multi-billion dollar entertainment industry. Uh, this isn't an industry you know, to just dabble in. Um, you know, you're working in the TV industry, the film industry, the commercial industry, the video game industry. So when you wrap your head around that and you understand that when you're licensing your music, you're not in the TV industry anymore, that you actually are working in a professional industry. Uh, part of that means that you actually have to follow <laughs> the rules of the industry, right? Just like running out onto a football field. Football looks like a lot of fun, but you don't just run out onto the field and you know, and, and hike the ball, right? You're going to get tackled by a 350 pound linebacker and you're not wearing any, you know, uh, padding. You're going to be taken off the field very quickly in, in a stretcher. <laughs> and so it's the same thing when it comes to licensing. Ignorance is not bliss when it comes to licensing. Uh, so there is, a, there, there is definitely training and knowledge um, that you have to have before you even enter into the game. Just like any other professional industry, whether if you want to be an architect, it's nice that you can draw well, but you still have to have the understanding to be able to build the building properly so that it doesn't fall fall on itself, right? right? right. And, and so this is the same thing. Uh, so it is open for everyone, but you do have to come to the table with knowledge and and uh, you know and not experience, but a a professional process, you know, that serves your end users. So my, the process that I've used has been you know um, the one that I've I have not adjusted it for well over a decade, probably about 12 or 13 years. So it's, 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 it's consistent and it's a simple four steps. Uh, of course, the first step is to build your catalog. Uh, and by build your catalog, I mean, you actually have to write good music. It really should go without saying. Yeah, but it doesn't uh, <laughs> always. But sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. But, uh, but the reality, my goal here is consistent placements, not the single placement. So that's why step one for me is to build your catalog. You should always be adding to your catalog. You know, it's nice that you have four songs from a record that you did six years ago. Uh, but what did you do last year? What did you do six months ago? What did you do last month? What do you have coming up? Right. Uh, you got, you got to be in, you got to be in, in the game and you got to be, you know, creating. Uh, so step one is to build your catalog. You should be actively building your catalog. Now, the thing is, as you build your catalog, you know, you write your song, you start going through the recording process. You record your song, you've got everything ready to go, you're mixing your song, or you're working with an engineer who's mixing your song, you, you create that full mix, and the moment you're done with that full mix, you are now in step two of the process, which is what I call creating the valuable content. And this is where you create the various additional mixes that serve the re-recording mixers and the uh, music editors, okay? People always think about music supervisors. I'm gonna send my songs to music supervisors. Well, we haven't even touched on supervisors yet, yeah. right? First people that we're really serving are the people that the music supervisors serve, right? First thing they're gonna do once they clear the music is they're gonna hand it off to the music editor who's then gonna edit it into the scene and he's gonna hand it or she's gonna hand that off to the re-recording mixer. OK, 
Okay. So step two of the process where we create the valuable content that serves those people. These are your various alternate mixes. For example, like an instrumental mix. Uh, if you're going to go for commercials, if you want to, you know, be in the commercial game, then you got to create your 15, 30 and 60 second cutdown mixes because commercials are 15, 30 and 60 seconds. Um, stim mixes as well. Uh, we mix music in stereo, TV shows, films, whatnot, they're mixed in surround. I know music, I'm sorry, I know re-recording uh, uh, mixers uh, who will not, if, if, they get, uh, if they get stereo tracks sent to them of a song, they'll actually reach back out to the supervisor and ask them to clear the, uh, the stems. They, they want stems because stems allow the re-recording uh, re mixer to mix that track in the surround field with all the other elements mm. that are in the show and the film, right? So step two is serving those people. And so that, that, that immediately is a completely different process than what we're used to in the traditional music path, right? Then we, once we've created those various alternate mixes and stems, we are automatically now in step three of the process. What's great about this process is you know, you know where you're at based on your answers, yes or no, right? Did you create your full mix? Yep. Okay. So now we're, now we're in the step two, right? Did you add your metadata? Nope. All right. So you're still in step two, right? right? right. Uh, so did you create all your, all your uh, alternate mixes and stems? Yep. Okay. So you're out of step two. Did you create your metadata yet? Nope. All right. Well, you're stuck in step three now, right? So once you've created your, your alternate mixes and stems, you're automatically in step three and that's adding all the metadata. Because as we talked about earlier, it's the metadata that allows your music to be searched and found out of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of other tracks and songs that are out in the marketplace. Now, this is where we're actually serving the music supervisors and the reps at music libraries. Because the supervisors, if the music is in their catalog, then they're going to use these various keywords and the metadata, right, to find your music. Basically, look at it as a big funnel. Okay, they're given specific you know, uh, requirements of what they're looking for. They're going to type in keywords and all of those songs are going into the top of the funnel. And then they're whittling that down to hopefully you know, just a 10, 10 or a dozen you know, tracks at the bottom of the funnel that they can spot check and see if that's going to be an ideal fit for the scene. Uh, it's the same thing with a, with a um, music library. A repetitive music library is going to do the same thing. If they get a request from a music supervisor, they're going to search their catalog using the same criteria, they're gonna whittle down to you know, hopefully a dozen songs or so, hopefully less ideally, they're gonna create a playlist and then they're gonna send that playlist over to the music supervisor. So the metadata is essential, it's, it's the golden ticket. If you don't add the metadata, your music doesn't get found. So if you've sent out your music to people and you wonder why you never heard back and you never added metadata, it's probably the reason why, because you're sending, it's like someone saying like, I'm really thirsty, it's hot outside. I'm really thirsty. It's hot outside. Oh, I'm so thirsty. And you walking up and saying, Hey, here's a newspaper, <laughs> right? It, it's, it, you're, you're not giving them what they need. Yeah. <laughs> right. So what are they, they're not going to care. So, uh, so, so now you've added the metadata. All right. You're now automatically in step four of the process, which I call getting your music heard, but this is the process. Where we're actually finding the ideal outlet for our song. And it's not always supervisors. It's music editors, it's music libraries, it's uh, sync agents, right? They're, they're music coordinators. There are a lot of people who work in this space. Music supervisors get thrown, you know, that word gets thrown around all over the place. And the problem is that so many independent musicians start by finding a list of music supervisors online and then they blast them their music without actually prepping it for them. And then they wonder like, oh, I've been sitting up with these emails, no one gets back to me. Mm. It goes back to that. Well, they're asking for water and you hand them a newspaper. Yeah. So of course not. Of course you're not going to hear back from them. Uh, so, so that work has to be done on your end. This isn't like the traditional music industry path where you send out your music to an individual at a magazine, you know, and, and they, you know, hey, they'll listen to it and they'll decide whether or not they want to review it. You know, you don't send it out and expect someone to figure out what to do with it. You actually need to know your target audience. So if you're writing R&B music, uh, you know, yet the supervisor who you found online somewhere is uh, working on a show where they're using female singer songwriter tracks. Why would you send them your R&B or hip hop album if they're currently only looking for female singer songwriter tracks? Yeah. yeah. Again, this goes back to, I really need water. Here's a newspaper. So and, and making these moves where you're not sending 
music with the metadata or you're sending the wrong type of songs over and over again are you like burning bridges with these relationships and kind of making it so that you never get heard or i i think that that's that's a very strong statement that i would agree disagree with um i i think that it you know messing up one time yeah you know it, it's it's you know you know but the reality is that un unless you course correct really quickly right right but but a lot of musicians don't right they send out an email to the to the supervisor who's working on a show you know where they're actually using female singer songwriter tracks they're sending them a hip-hop record or an r&b record but they actually didn't even go to that supervisor's website to see that the supervisor says on their website hey don't submit to me i work through these libraries because there are a lot of supervisors when you go to their websites they actually tell you I don't take music from independent musicians. There's too many legal ramifications to that. Right. So now I only work through libraries. So, so a you didn't pay attention to that, but you sent them the you, you sent them an email. Okay, you made a mistake. Of course, they're going to delete it because they don't want to deal with any of that stuff. They already have you know the library reps who they're dealing with every day, and that's that's the priority for them, right? Because they're getting music the way they want it. But then if you send them an email three weeks later, being like, hey, do you get a check second to check out my music? Then of, of course you're going to get deleted and probably flagged. And you're like, I don't, I don't need to receive any more emails from this person. Yeah. I have enough, I have enough people that that know what they're doing, right? That this person doesn't need to be emailing me anymore, and I don't need that person blocking up. I mean, I do that myself, and I don't even supervise films. I have people yeah. who reach out to me once and you know about something which they could have learned about me in 30 seconds if they'd have actually gone to my website, and then the first time I just delete it. But then the second time that they follow up for me. I just, I just flag them. They're done. They're going into spam. It's been marked as spam or marked as junk as my yeah. email does it because, because I don't need to go through that again. You know? Yeah, uh, yeah. So that's the way that I approach mine. And I, and I have a lot of supervisor friends and, and, you know, and a lot of them, to be honest with you, um, you know, they have an email that gets out into the public and then of course they get blown up and then they just, you know, then they suddenly have a new professional email. Yeah, you know. yeah, that so, email not even being checked anymore. Yeah, so so th there are there are elements where it's like you know, it, so I wouldn't say that you you burn you burn bridges by making one mistake, but but the reality is that why would you even start there? You know, right. it it's not hard to do the research. It's not hard to see what they're looking for. But on top of it, it's so easy. This is what's amazing about licensing to me. Licensing is like backing your car out of the garage. It's something you either do or you don't do. Okay, it's, there's not multiple levels of it. Not like playing guitar where you can play guitar for 30 years and every year become a better guitar player, right? Once you've learned how to back your car out of the garage, you either do it or you don't, okay? If you don't get it out of the garage and the door's gonna close on your car, you're not gonna be happy, right? But you're either in the garage or you're not. Now, the difference here is that the goal is to back the car out of the garage 19 times a day. You're using the same skill set. Yeah. Okay. But as, and this kind of goes back to the idea of like, you know, uh, how much, do you, how much can, can you make doing this? Well, right, the right. goal is should never be the single placement. That's like saying like, I'm going to back my car out of the garage once a, once a month, right? Yeah. No, the back your car out of the garage consistently daily. Once you've got that skill set, the skill sets there, you just, you just want to do it more and more and more and more and more. And of course, the more you're backing your car out of the garage, it's not that you become better at it. It's just that you have more results from it. Right. Right. That makes so much sense. And I love how you broke down the four part system so clearly, because I agree when we can put things into a system, it makes it a lot easier to number one, do it. <laughs> number two, get good and stay consistent doing it. And as you were saying, sync is not just about getting that one placement. It's about getting consistent placements. So once yeah. you know exactly how to approach it, you can just rinse and repeat the process over and over again and continue to get long lasting results. Right. And it's it's like gigging as a musician, right? Like if you're like, well, I'm a great musician, but I am not going to play any shows until I do the Super Bowl halftime show. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it, Taylor Swift hasn't even done. So good luck. <laughs> it's it's insane to think that, right? I mean, like yeah. no one who's done the Super Bowl halftime show only did that show, right? They yeah. they did a lot of shows through their career consistently. And then, and then eventually they, you know, of course, then they start doing the, the, the big shows, like those big televised shows. And it's the same thing with licensing. Like, you know, like 
if you look at it like, well, I'm only going to do the big, I'm only going to get the big placements. That's like saying like, well, I'm just going to wait until, until someone calls me to do the next Super Bowl show. Yeah. You're going to keep waiting because you have to get into the game. People have to start seeing your face. They have to start, you know, uh, working with you. Um, you know, and, and, and it's just like anything as, as you get your songs placed and as you create value in the catalog, then you have the ability to negotiate for more money, right? Mm -hmm. But if you're coming to the table and you're like, I have a song and it's, you know, it's perfect for the show, they should pay me $10,000. The reality is there's 45 other songs that someone could find in the next you know, 20 minutes that are just as perfect. Now, you, yours may have been found first. Yours may have been uh, you know, the one that just kind of fits it better. But, if, but if, you're, if your negotiating tactic is so extreme that you're like, no, I want Beyonce's paycheck, the $80,000, that's the reason why they're not using Beyonce right? They're, they're, they're not using her because they only have 10 grand. Yeah, so, yeah. so, so the thing is now, if, if I was a supervisor and you got to put yourself in, into their shoes as well, if you find three songs that are perfect fits for this $10,000 placement, but one of those artists you've worked with before, maybe twice, and you've actually had some type of conversation with them and all three are great fits. Who are you more inclined to work with? The one that you already know is trusted and you already have that relationship with them Absolutely. right especially for a big placement like a ten thousand dollar placement so this is why again you have to look at this as it's just like gigging gigging is a consistent long-term game as a musician and it's a it's a great income stream you know if you can be consistently gigging licensing is a great income stream if you can consistently be licensing your music but if you're looking at gigging as only doing one show a year you're probably not going to retire and if you look at, or anytime soon, uh, <laughs> and, and it's the same thing as, as licensing, you know, like I've had very big placements. I mean, I've had some of the biggest film placements and I've had, you know, theme songs and stuff like that as well. I've had the biggest placements. Um, you know, I, I'm not retired yet. You know, it's, it's, so, so it is about consistency. You have to do this consistently and it is a, it is a long game. But it's an extremely, extremely fun and rewarding long game, and and it, it's a you know rewarding personally because um, you you really have the freedom to make your own you know schedule and plan, and you're not no longer you know bound to a boss or a job that you don't like. It's rewarding creatively because you can write the music that you want to write, you know when you want to write it and work with yeah. the people who you want to work with. And then, of course, financially, it's extremely rewarding because you're not only generating income on the front end, but you're generating income on the back end. And just like compound interest, that, that's it's the same thing. The more songs that you get in the queue that are landing on queue sheets that are generating, you know, back end royalties every quarter, you have maybe the first quarter, you got 10 songs that are generating, you know, back end royalties. And then maybe the next quarter, you got more placements and you have 20 and then you have 30. And that's the goal is you want those back end royalties to last for years and years and years. And that's the power that you have with just one sync placement, but one sync placement isn't gonna get you to retire. Yeah, I love that. All right, so you have dropped so much incredible information in this episode and there's more coming because you have a training series and a webinar coming up. So we're gonna link um, how you can sign up for those in the show notes. So check out the show notes for the link for those. But can you tell us a little bit about what we can expect from those uh, opportunities? Well, <laughs> a lot more than this. I'm glad this was uh, this was um, uh, informative. Uh, yeah, so in the training series, it, um, it's, it's a three-part training series, three videos. Uh, each video is roughly 20 to 25 minutes. So it comes out to be a little over an hour. Uh, and it's free. Um, and so we dive deep into, uh, we dive deep into my four steps. Uh, you know, I, I actually, you know, go into, um, you know, all the various alternate mixes that I, that I create and whatnot. And so it's much deeper dive into that. Uh, of course we talk about back end royalties, you know, I, I call the back end royalty side an all weather income. And what I mean by that is, you know, during COVID COVID is a great example of how powerful licensing is. And it's, it's also very, it's a great example also to see how much uh, since COVID happened, how much the uh, entertainment industry has, has exploded. Because what happened when everything shut down, people stayed home and granted Hollywood shut down for just a couple months, 
uh, it was about three and a half months, but then it started, you know, kicking back in. And then, of course they had all their protocols, but, but when people were home, what, what were they doing? They were looking for entertainment, right? And you look at the growth that we've had in the last three years, it's, it's tremendous. So the, the reason why I call it an all weather uh, income is because when a lot of my musician friends who play for major artists, when, when all that, those tours shut down, their income streams ended. You know, they had, they had plans to go out on the road and do all these shows, but suddenly it was over and no more paycheck. But with licensing, that doesn't happen because even though during that short term, you know, those three, three and a half months, there really weren't any big shows coming out. Everything was on hold. Commercials were still happening. In fact, if you think about this, there was a, a starting in, um, I believe it was uh, April of 2020, we had for about um, about six to eight weeks, every commercial was like a very dark, depressing, minor piano, very sparse, uh, you know, and then it went major for the last, you know, three chords it was like, but we're here to help. And, and you know, we're going to, we're going to see this to the end. Like commercials were still being um, um, yeah. you know, created. And what happened was there was a very quick trend in all the music that was used for commercials during that time. So I call it all weather again, because all the shows that were still on, you know, uh, you know, in syndication and whatnot that had already been previously been licensed, they were still out there generating income. They were still generating back in royalties. In fact, you know, my income grew in 2020 uh, because of that. And so that's, that to me is really the power in the world of single licensing is the fact that no matter what happens, uh, songs that you place today, if something happens in six years from now, you're still going to be earning royalties from that. And that's the, that's the power in building that now than waiting because the longer you wait, the more people get into this game and there will come a point where we will hit that tipping point where you've, where you're too late to the game. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So now is the time to get in and luckily you have Michael to guide you through it. <laughs> so go watch these trainings and Michael, aside from that, where can we connect with you, keep up with you and just stay up to date with everything you're doing? Well, I, I release uh, every week. I have a, a new video or blog that I release uh, through mastermusiclicensing.com. Um, and uh, I mean, that's, that's, that's really it. You know, I, I do a lot of trainings and stuff like that. As far as uh, every Tuesday, there's a new video or blog that I release for those who are interested in licensing. And it's not only licensing, you know, my, my background is obviously in the engineering and the technical side. I have a home studio and, and being a songwriter and guitar player. So I, I talk about all of those elements, you know, wrapping up songwriting, uh, you know, things to be aware of, of course, when we're writing music for TV, because, you know, writing music for TV is a slightly different endeavor than writing for the radio. And, and just like writing for the radio, there are things you need to be aware of as a songwriter. And it's the same thing when it comes to licensing, you know, your songs uh, to TV shows. There's certain things that work and there are certain things that don't work. It's the same thing with mixing on the technical side. There are certain things that work better for radio that do not work as well for TV and vice versa. Certain things that work when it comes to mixing for TV that work better than, uh, than mixing for radio. Uh, they're not too far different, but they are things to be aware of, uh, um, especially as an artist. If you're going down both routes, uh, you know, you start, it starts suddenly becomes very clear why having multiple mixes, for example, like, you know, if, if, if I have the ability to, I'll do like a rock mix. And then if I have EDM elements in my track, I'll do an EDM mix. And it's just as simple as just adjusting the levels between them. So on the EDM mix, the, the EDM electronic elements are louder. And on the rock mix, the organic instruments are, are, are louder. And, and what that does is that, again, that allows us to position our songs for multiple uh, different types of placements. You know, maybe the EDM mix is better for a commercial, whereas the rock mix is better for like an HGTV show or something like that. So there are these, but we would, we don't really think about doing that stuff when it comes to radio, right? Yeah. When it comes to radio, we just push the vocal up, boom, radio mix, right? Uh, and that becomes its own mix in and of itself. Uh, but when you're aware of this, you're able to start leveraging all the work you've already done. That's what's nice about this. Step two of the process allows you to, for example, you could take a 10 song record and just by creating various alternate mixes, and let's say you're able to create six additional alternate mixes for each song on a 10 song record. So that's a total of seven mixes per song. You now have created a 70, a, a, a album that you can promote to the licensing world that now have 70 licensable tracks, not 10 licensable tracks, 70. 
Yeah. That's but you've written sense. 10 songs. Yeah. So you've exponentially increased your opportunities for placements by just applying one simple step of the process. That's very powerful. These yeah, are yeah. these are things to be aware of. So so that's you know that that's what I I share a lot also in the in the weekly uh, content. Well, I'm excited to read that. I I'm like wanting to go back and re-record all my old music so that I can <laughs> get all these mixes and uh, yeah. and get going and sync licensing myself. So thank you again, Michael, for coming on today. And everyone who's listening, we'll see you in the free training and all of the stuff that's coming up. Thank you so much for listening to the Out To Be podcast. If you like this episode, be sure to share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, rate and review it on Apple iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. That really helps us spread the message and get this podcast out to even more women in music. For more information on coaching services, head to katiezacardi.com. See you next week.